This is the Muscles and Management Podcast, where we build your body and your business. Talking all things training, sports performance, and business for athletes and aspiring coaches to enhance your training and better your career. Muscles and Management is brought to you by Challenger Strength with your host, Jerry DeFilippo. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 75 of the Muscles and Management podcast. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe if you have not already. Uh, I'd really appreciate it. Uh, I guess sort of a milestone here. I'm just realizing episode 75. Um, I celebrated 50 and was like thinking about 100 coming up in like a couple months, but I didn't really think um, to talk about 75. So I guess here we are. <laughs> Congratulations uh, to myself. Um, but no, but thank you guys. Seriously, um, I, I didn't really anticipate this show, you know, going to where it has. And to be completely honest with you, like didn't see myself, uh, getting to this many download or I'm sorry, not downloads episodes. Like I, I really would have expected myself to kind of fizzle out, um, with recording these just after a certain point. And if you would have told me that I would have been going on a year and a half of these, um, you know, in 75 episodes, I wouldn't have believed you. So, uh, thank you guys for the support. Thank you guys for making it feel worthwhile to do these and kind of keeping me motivated to do them. And, you know, now even expanding the show to, to twice a week, uh, because of that. You know, I really, you know, I can't say enough about how much I appreciate it. Um, you know, all the great guests, uh, just, just everybody that shared this and, and giving me feedback and reached out and said they liked the show and people from different states in, in America, people from different countries around the world. It's just been fantastic and uh, I'm very lucky and grateful. So thank you. Uh, with that said. If you have not already, check out last week's episodes, episode 74, Bill Hazell. He's a pitching consultant for the Philadelphia Phillies and also assistant director of pitching at Driveline. A great episode talking about a lot of different things related to just a game of baseball, uh, pitching training and things like that. So check that out if you haven't yet. And then Monday of last week, episode 73, Meathead Monday. Will my squat make me a faster slash better athlete? So kind of getting into all of the factors that go in, uh, you know, to making it not as black and white as an argument as you would think, um, you know, and, and saying that, hey, if my squat goes up, will it make me a faster or be just a better athlete or even better than somebody that has a lower or a uh, squat that's not as high in weight as mine. So kind of getting into all of the components that make that a very messy type of translation. It's not really a translation at all. There's components of the squat, you know, improving that help those things. But I kind of get into why it's not just a apples to apples comparison and what goes into all of that. So check that out. If you haven't yet, this week, uh, episode 76, Erica Suter, uh, just a great episode with a very smart trainer talking a little bit of training, but also a lot of the business side of things and, you know, what we're doing during quarantine and, and advice we have for, for coaches and trainers during quarantine and also athletes as well. And, you know, keeping accountability with training, um, remotely and, and just all that kind of stuff. So you guys are going to love that one. Second time she's been on the show. The first one was excellent. So I can only imagine you guys are going to like this one as well. Um, with that all said, shifting gears just a little bit into some non-podcast stuff, I wanted to take a second to just let you guys know that um, the Challenger Guide to Conjugate Programming for Coaches and Athletes has officially released today. Um, I'm just uh, super excited. This was like a three-week project and it, there was a lot that went into it over the course of this three weeks. I kind of spurred the moment in like mid-April, like first week of April said, Hey, like, you know, this warm up menu that I released got a lot of downloads and had a lot of positive feedback. You know, would you guys like to see, um, you know, an actual ebook that costs a little money? It's only 10 bucks. Um, just to kind of offset some of the work. 
uh, you know, I'm looking to get into the ebook process and, and what better way to do it, uh, following up, you know, something that got a lot of love, the being the warm up menu and a lot of good feedback. And I kind of said, Hey, I think I've, um, maybe earned the right now to get into an ebook thing. So I want to take a second just to give you a little outline of the ebook and, and just let you guys know that it has dropped. Head over to challengerstrength.com. Uh, it's in the store section, uh, to download, uh, 75, over 75 uh, pre-orders of this before uh, up until Sunday night, excuse me. So very thankful to that. That's amazing. Um, you know, I'm excited to see where it goes once we release it. Uh, with that said, just a quick little rundown. So kind of giving you a little bit of context and history of conjugate programming. So talking about Joe DeFranco and how I was inspired by him, um, you know, what the definition of conjugate programming is and, and what it really means. Um, and then kind of what that means to me and, and how I view conjugate programming, you know, given the definitions of it and what it really is and why I kind of decided to choose it as my, um, programming method, uh, talking about Louis Simmons, Westside Barbell, can't talk about conjugate without him. He's kind of like the father of it. Um, you know, just talking a little bit about his view of it and, and, you know, what all that means to me and, and all that kind of stuff. So really kind of a history background. I didn't want to just give you guys a bunch of numbers and stuff without giving you a, a, a reason for why I used it and my kind of story with using it. So uh, excited for that part of it. Then part two, kind of getting into some of the best in certain fields and, and how I've kind of blended all things from a lot of them into this this programming style for athletes. So talking about Charlie Francis and sprinting, plyometrics and Yuri Verkashansky. Obviously, I mentioned Joe D and Louis Simmons in terms of the powerlifting and true strength training type of stuff. Um, you know, Charles Poliquin and, and what I learned from him for hypertrophy and just some early mistakes that I might have made in, in each of those areas and, you know, lessons that I've learned since. And I'm also, this is a question that I always get is, you know, what books would I recommend? I'm recommending books from each. I think it's going to be a pretty cool part of this. Um, getting into part three, it's like why I kind of utilize the conjugate method. So basically just talking about the benefits of it and, and all the little things that I think kind of go into making it effective and, you know, training residuals and that we, you know, how often we need to train things to kind of keep them uh, up to par. So talking about all, you know, all of that and how it kind of comes together. And then parts four and five are really just how I'm implementing structure and then just some sample programs. So, you know, assessing, testing, you know, using the force velo curve to make those uh, decisions on what programming uh, needs the athlete has. Um, you know, primary movements, supplemental movements, accessory movements, like those three things that really set up the, the skeleton and the structure of a program. And also some talk about, you know, full body models that I use. And then just going a little bit uh, over max effort, dynamic effort, uh, repetition method. And how I load those and things like that. And then, like I said, uh, sample weeks of programming, uh, you know, and adjusting based on athlete needs. So talking about novice athletes and, and some of the basic things we could do for them, uh, intermediate athletes, and then all the way up to advanced athletes working off of two, three and four day training weeks and, you know, force deficient, velocity deficient, or just kind of balanced programs based on athletes and, and things like that. So this is, this is huge. It's like 50 pages. It could be way more than 10 bucks, but I kind of just wanted to get eased into the whole ebook thing. And I thought this was a good opportunity to do that. So that's out. Go download that thing. You guys are going to love it. Give me feedback on that. I appreciate, um, you know, all the support and everything. It really means a lot. So thank you. With that said, on to today's topic. So I wrote an article uh, two weeks ago, week ago, two weeks ago, something like that. I'm losing kind of track of time during this quarantine. Um, but basically just growing tired of all of the ridiculous stuff I was seeing on social media when it comes to, um, you know, the unstable surface training 
a lot of pro athletes, unfortunately, doing things that don't really have a big benefit into sports themselves. And unfortunately, parents, athletes, and maybe some sport coaches will see these type of things and really think that though, you know, they are the way to do it. Uh, and if you know me and if you've listened to me, you know that that is definitely not the way to do it. And I've explained that, but I wrote this article called the surface doesn't move in sport. And it shouldn't when you train either. And it got a lot of positive feedback and a lot of people enjoyed it. A lot of coaches enjoyed it and shared it. So again, thank them for that. But, um, I wanted to take a second to, you know, maybe do an episode just walking through, um, verbally my thoughts on this, you know, running through the article, so to speak, and, and just talking about this topic. So, um, as I said, like if you're listening to this, you're going to know this. Um, and if you don't, you're going to know pretty soon. Uh, I, I've, constantly talked about my disdain for the unstable surface training. I I think it's just a misconception regarding what is actually occurring in sport. And I think that in addition to that, it sometimes turns into like, hey, this looks cool. Um, It makes the trainers feel smart that they're doing advanced things. And it turns into like these social media posts that get glorified and Thankfully, more and more people are realizing that it's not the way to go about it. So there's more of kind of people just, you know, telling people that it's not good to do versus it being glorified. But I still think there are enough people emphasizing this type of training and, you know, doing it that I I need to kind of still talk about it. And I've tried to go beyond just like shitting on this stuff and not providing any kind of context to why it's not good. And I've really put that on myself to make sure that I'm explaining alternatives and the science of behind why it's not effective. So I, I really try to take responsibility in doing that and not just being somebody that just rants on it and doesn't provide any context because that would be just as bad. Um, if we take a step back and just look at facts, science, and just kind of the sport itself, as I mentioned, um, you can really just get the idea that this unstable surface training is just no more, uh, you know, than a a misconception and an idea that, um, athletes have to balance and stabilize, but they're not doing it in the manner that they are when they're on these balls and these unstable surfaces, stabilization and balance comes from an entirely different, uh, dynamic when it comes to sports. So I want to really, and what this is what I did with the article. I want to address the misconceptions regarding balance training, quote unquote, uh, balance training, um, you know, what kind of, what really does occur in sport and the dynamics of interacting with a stable surface and other, you know, opponents and, and things of that nature, um, force application, force development, kind of how that all, how that all comes into play. And then, um, talking about like the principle of dynamic correspondence. So basically Yuri Verkashansky, and I'm going to talk about this in the ebook too, cheap plug. Um, the principle of dynamic correspondence. So in layman's terms, basically like how transferable, uh, general physical preparation training is to, um, sport. And there's like a, a list and I've gone over this before, but a list of things to look for that you can match up to sport. And that just kind of makes the training translate more to sport. So not only am I going to tell you what to look for when it comes to trying to make your, uh, general physical prep, translate more to sport, but I'm going to talk about why that, um, you know, principle of dynamic correspondence really just kind of lays to rest, uh, you know, this whole idea of, um, you know, unstable surface training being extra sport specific, uh, and, and how it really shows that it's not specific at all. And it's further away from what we need to be doing. Um, so yeah, so let's start with this common misconception of balance. So when we look at the misconceptions revolving around the idea of balance and uh, the application of this type of training, the overemphasis on, um, 
you know, isolating it and the general idea that we can kind of put the cart before the horse when it comes to young athletes. So the first problem I have is it's overemphasized. So even if you wanted to make the argument that it is effective, which it's not, and I'm going to get to that, but even if you wanted to make that argument, um, it's still just done way too early. Like there's too many gadgets being implemented to young athletes who just need to learn how to sprint properly and jump properly and just do things well on a non-moving ground. And when you're putting them on a moving surface, when they haven't even you know, built the foundations of movement, uh, in a regular sense, you're just really, uh, you know, pushing them down a road that you don't want to go down. Um, you know, I, I think the biggest factors when it comes to young athletes and, you know, the thought process of these factors that would steer us away from this type of training, younger athletes generally need to focus on and best develop a lot of these categories in no particular order, but here are some of them. Um, proprioception and adeptness at, you know, problem solving in very varying environments, uh, where they can basically self-organize. So just think of environments that they have to just, you know, make spur the moment reactions and, and really move based on stimulus and things that just aren't set in stone. A lot of these drills with the footwork and then, you know, unstable surface training are predetermined and don't really require that. So that's number one. Um, as I mentioned, sprinting and the ability to consistently strike the ground in favorable positions, um, Doing things on unstable surfaces does not work on that because the ground is different. So that is big. So a lot of just general sprint reps, um, you know, eventually moving towards sprint reps in more kind of free space. Once you get the mechanics down, um, you know, and working on positions that are favorable in, in our sprints and jumps. Uh, dynamic motor control to varying ranges of motion. So if you want to look at it in a really basic sense, like getting the movement pattern, the main movement patterns down and being able to control them will go a long way in just general sporting movements. Uh, force, this is a big one, force producing ability. So in general terms, think strength, but in more complex terms, think of like the force application while moving through spritz and jumps. This is a big one. You cannot develop that correctly on moving surfaces. So it, it's really just a kind of puts a fork in the whole idea of it. If you think about the force application, you can't, app, you can't uh, apply, excuse me, force into a moving object the way you would on a non-moving surface. And then the last one, rate of force development. So plyos and sprints, um, you know, conditioning the tendons and ligaments and the central nervous system to best apply force in the context of speed movement. So there you have it. Proprioception and problem solving, sprinting, you know, striking the ground in favorable positions, dynamic motor control, uh, force producing ability, and then rate of force development. So those are the biggest things we look to make, to improve upon with young athletes. Um, for one, we can, Best kind of, excuse my ears, itchy. Um, we can best capture all of these things with, you know, the simple sprints and plyos and trend training and just those environments like the sports themselves and just playing around with other athletes their age um, to promote reactionary ability to, to various stimuli and stuff like that. Um, you know, and secondly, as soon as you change the surface, uh, which is unfortunately the first move a lot of trainers make that I see on online with these videos is, you know, we're going to disturb the development of all the, the previously mentioned qualities and just begin to, um, acclimate them to a surface they're never actually going to encounter. Like you're never going to see the surface move in, in most team sports. So why would I acclimate myself to that if it's not for like a rehabilitation or proprioception early on after like surgery type of thing? And, and that could be done on a more basic thing, like an Airx pad or something. Um, the need for stabilization in novice and advanced athletes, um, it really comes from the dynamic of the force applied on a non-moving surface while our body moves and is potentially acted upon by other forces, uh, such as players, varying demands, uh, you know, that impacts decision-making, all coupled together with the force relationship with the ground. So, um, you know, when we apply force into a non-moving surface, 
and we that is what we're stabilizing and, and really balancing against. So when I put my foot down into a cut and I apply force and then reapply force back out to move in another direction, like I'm stabilizing on my one leg, but it's stabilizing with the ground that isn't moving, right? I'm stabilizing during my relationship with forces with the ground and, and the forces that I apply. Um, there's also seems to be this misconception that elite athletes, you know, become elite in their sports because of this type of training. Um, these athletes are elite because they're elite and, you know, they didn't get better because of those drills. A lot of them that are doing it are, you know, making those drills look easy because of the fact that they have these elite genetic abilities. Um, so don't take that into effect whatsoever. So what actually occurs in sport? Um, Sport is defined by the idea that we put force into the ground and the ground reacts accordingly. So what Newton's third law of motion tells us for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. We displace force to the surface and then our tendons, ligaments, and nervous system work together to basically determine our ability to respond to what the ground transmits back to us. So I said what we put in, we get out, right? So the more elite we are in interacting with ground forces and, you know, transferring the basic perception that we are encountering force up to our, um, you know, response system and that process becoming more efficient allows us to, um, achieve effective ground contact, you know, impacting things like stiffness, um, elasticity, like how efficiently can we produce and display forces? in the context of speed movements like jumps and sprints, like that is really huge in terms of agility and sport, not wobbling around on something that's moving. Um, the shiftiest athletes also possess a ton of genetic ability to have elite central nervous systems. Um, you know, they can efficiently transmit force concentrically in terms of their output and eccentrically. So like dealing with the response to the ground very well and the less genetic it can also just genetically gifted, excuse me, can also improve these qualities. So I, I hear all the time, like that guy wasn't good because of these things you're mentioning. He's just gifted. Well, it's like, no, he's still good because of those things. He's just really good at those things. I'm mentioning a lot of it because of genetics. It doesn't mean we can't raise our you know ability in those certain areas to whatever our genetic ceiling is. So don't get that misconception. You can work on these things. Um, the biggest thing to know is that as soon as the surface changes and begins moving, we're disrupting the entire process that I've detailed. Um, you know, also remember that unilateral activities and focus unilateral landings are plenty. We over, over, we underestimate their ability to become, uh, help us become better, uh, at stabilizing, you know, on the ground and stuff. So, um, no, nowhere in these scenarios do we have to stabilize because the ground is moving and changing shape or position. So remember that. Um, not only does it not relate, but some problems can arise from it as well. Um, the biggest thing to know here is not only does it, you know, not promote any of the qualities I've alluded to already, but it can actually be detrimental, uh, to performance and potentially causing soft tissue injuries to the lower body. Um, if we spend a bulk of what we do with our lower body training on a moving surface and the way in which we produce force and come across force basically alters itself based on that. And then we go on the field of play where it's not in that you know, moving state and it's very different. The force uh, interactions are much higher because the surface is stable. Um, excuse me. We're going to potentially expose ourselves to be unprepared and conditioned to handle the impacts that occur on, you know, the field of play. So that's a big one as well. Kind of the nuts and bolts now of the principle of dynamic of correspondence. So Yuri uh, Verkashansky. So Addressing the principle of dynamic correspondence, basically transferability, how transferable general physical prep or your strength training and sports performance training is to sport itself. Um, you know, the misconception that this type of training is extra sport specific, uh, you know, really gets dismantled when you look at this. 
One of the claims made about unstable surface training is that it increases sport specificity. But if we look at the principle from Yuri, we can really dispel that pretty quickly just from common sense. Um, transferability pretty succinctly states that we can bridge the gap of general physical preparation uh, training to sport via certain characteristics. So basically, Yuri said that we can you know, bridge this gap from general physical prep to sport with the plane of motion. So the amplitude or direction in which we're participating. So think about frontal plane in baseball, lateral movements, or just going forward or backwards or transverse plane and rotational sports, things like that. Um, the duration of the activity. So like what energy systems are prevalent, anaerobic, aerobic, things like that. Um, the range of motion of the activity and uh, the accentuated region of force production. So this is a big one, like winner here. Um, imagine how much a moving surface would disrupt the region in which we can produce force and the amount of force that we are producing. So this is the area in which we produce force and the area in which force production is most prevalent in the sport. So if the surface is moving in my training and then I go back to my sport and I mentioned this before, the amount of force I can produce on a moving object is way different than one I can, what I can produce in a stable, uh, surface. So that is a big one. Like we're not going to get conditioned to producing as much force as we need to. And that's just going to leave a big hole for us in terms of our training. Um, the dynamics of effort. So the intensity and the speed of the activity. This is another big one. Oftentimes when we are balancing or see people balancing on these type of objects, the speed of the movement is way down. So it actually diminishes the dynamics in which the effort is applied and in which it is done. So we're lowering the speed of our movement. And as we know in sports and team sports, a lot of the movement's ballistic and very fast. Um, this relates to kind of like what I just said, the rate and time of force production. So how fast am I moving and how, what's the rate in which I'm producing force? And basically like the regimen of, of muscular work. So the eccentric, concentric, isometric relationship. Uh, we can pretty quickly begin to shoot down on stable surface training, uh, you know, one by one off of these uh, principles from Yuri and, you know, just how it really diminishes a lot of things on that list. So remember, if it diminishes something that I just mentioned when it, you know, comes to connecting training to sport, um, it might as well be in like another galaxy when it comes to the sport itself, because if it has nothing to do with anything on that list in terms of matching up, it's really, um, you know, just not what you need to be doing. Um, if you're disrupting the region of force production, because you're basically altering the fashion in which we display force due to the surface moving and the overall magnitude, so the overall exertion of force, and the rate in which we can do it, you're just really, it's a recipe for disaster. So put pretty simply, like think about how, you know, athletes cannot exert nearly as much or as rapid as the force they would normally on a non-moving surface. And then also, as I already mentioned, think of the instability um, of the moving surface. So like it doesn't allow them to perform with the same dynamics. Um, when you put this all together and you greatly alter the rate and the amount of force that you can produce, um, you know, this is a, an extremely part, important part of, you know, things like sprinting and jumping and getting faster on conventional surfaces. So you're not improving those abilities when you're, pre you know, you're doing things on these surfaces that are moving. And I can pretty confidently say that if we play on a surface, a certain surface, it's pretty damn specific to practice and train on one that is similar. So to wrap things up, what does this mean? Um, I don't want to completely disparage something without providing any alternatives. So I think it's important to, you know, think of some things that we can do in, in lieu of these things. So looking back to the activity or the, excuse me, the principles that I mentioned, especially for young athletes. So improving proprioception and, and adeptness at problem solving and, and just different environments, sprinting and consistently striking the ground in favorable positions, dynamic motor control, the varying ranges of motion, uh, force producing ability. Uh, you know, in terms of strength, you know, 
force application while moving through sprints and jumps in more complex terms, and then just rate of force development, plyos, um, sprints, stiffness, elasticity, stuff like that. So we can do those things in a basic sense. And, you know, also just getting on the field and playing your sport or on the court or on the ice, whatever sport it is, is just a really underrated part of this. And it's just like overdone. Like it's so simple just to do your sport and play your sport. Um, we can begin to introduce and match up more of the transferability principles to what we're doing to get it closer to the sport as we age, as we get closer to the season, as we advance for all those reasons. Fill your buckets early on and, and your basic limiting strength factors and your basic athleticism and, and speed and, and straight line speed and stuff like that. And then zero in on some of the, the finer points. So, uh, I guess with all that said, you know, emphasize producing force on stable surfaces and the rate in which we can do that. Sprinting and jumping are, are come to mind in terms of how we do that. And do not forget or underestimate that this is big. The stabilization and balance challenges that can simply come from just performing activities on one leg. Um, and, and above all else to finish up here, like always remember to watch sports, study them and kind of understand the demands of them based on what you see and remind yourself that if the surface doesn't move in the sport, it probably shouldn't, uh, you know, when you're training either. So I think that kind of wraps all of that up. Um, I hope that was pretty simple and easy to understand and, and it kind of went well with the article. Um, you know, as always, I hope you guys enjoy this one. I think it was uh, pretty straight and to the point, um, you know, and, and covered a lot of things in terms of this topic. And like I said, I don't want to, you know, denounce something unless I can provide alternatives. So um, with that said, thank you guys, as always, for all the support. 75 episodes is awesome. Also, go get that ebook. You guys are going to love it. It's available. Um, Challengestrength.com. Only 10 bucks worth. Way more than that, in my opinion. That's not a sales pitch. It's, it's like 50 pages. Um, and, and as always, thank you guys. I will talk to you next time. Peace. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Muscles and Management Podcast brought to you by Challenger Strength. I'm your host, Jared Filippo, signing off on the show that's changing the way we view training, sports performance, and business.